Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Come on up, Bob. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be back. It's been a long time. We've been on hiatus owing to the COVID virus and its impact on Howard County Community College, but it's fun. We're going to try and do a series of shows this fall and see if we can bring some information to our public that will be of interest. As always, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College its faculty, staff, students, or otherwise. And insofar as we impart any kind of legal information to people on this show, it is not intended to address individual legal situations. We are talking about the 25th Amendment today, so I don't think anybody other than Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Grassley, and President Trump are likely to be affected by our legal discussions today. But it's a pleasure today to do our show again, and our number one all-time guest, Alan W. Steinhorn, is on today to so discuss nice to the 25th mom. Amendment. Thank you, Alan. And we'll just get right down to it, that the president has recently had a significant health scare. It's a deadly disease he has. He's got a deadly disease presently. Mm-hmm. And the real question is, what happens if he, as so many people have in our country, has to go on a ventilator? And I throw that out to you, Alan. What happens if this disease he has takes him out of his ability to work? Well, first, we all wish President Trump and Melania and all the other people at the White House a speedy and complete recovery. I understand there are 34 people connected with the White House who have contracted the disease. Apparently today, a memo was leaked that was submitted to FEMA. There are 34 people in the White House that have become afflicted with COVID-19. Now, the statistics show that about one out of every 40 people are going to die from it. So there is a chance, although we all are hoping a very, very tiny chance, that this could be more serious to the president than we currently know. So this brings up the 25th Amendment. The 25th Amendment was enacted shortly after John F. Kennedy was assassinated because there had to be a process by which a president could be replaced. And throughout history, there's been issues where presidents have passed away, and several presidents have passed away in office, where there's been a question about how the process works to replace the president. So there are five ways that a president can leave office. The most obvious is if he's elected out. After one term, this happened to George H.W. Bush, and it also happened to Jimmy Carter in 1980. They were one-term presidents, and the electorate voted them out. The second way is if they complete two terms. Now, after FDR, Congress enacted a two-term limit. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, actually was entering his fourth term when he passed away. You can also be impeached, but impeachment is a two-part process. So first you get impeached by the House of Representatives, which is like an indictment, and then the Senate has to convict you. So there have been two impeachments. One president has left, Richard Nixon. Another way you can leave office is to die. Several presidents have died during office. But now we're presented with a situation where we have a president who has a potentially fatal disease, who's receiving intense medication, medication that can cause him to become paranoid, that can cause him to become emotionally unstable. The uh, steroids that he is taking can have serious side effects. So the question becomes, at what point should we consider transferring power to the vice president? And that's the 25th Amendment. So it was enacted back in 1965, back in an era when people in Congress actually enacted legislation. Well, that's a fair point. That's what Congress is supposed to do. Over the last eight to 12 years, we haven't had a lot of legislation. 
we have had the Affordable Care Act, but in the last four years, the only legislation I'm aware of that's passed has been tax legislation that was passed early in the presidency. But yes, President Trump's presidency. President Trump's presidency. Yes, they passed the 25th Amendment, which required three-fourths of the state to ratify it, which set forth the process for removal of the president. And under the 25th Amendment, there are different sections of the amendment. The first one is if the president dies or resigns. Well, Richard Nixon resigned from office in 1974, and that's when the vice president took over. Second part of the 25th Amendment has to do with replacing a vice president. This has happened twice. Spiro Agnew resigned under potential criminal indictment, and he worked out a deal, and he, he resigned. And if you recall, he was then replaced by Gerald Ford. One of Maryland's great governors. I still have my Spiro Agnew pencil from 1967 when we visited um, the Maryland State House when I was in sixth grade. I will treasure that pencil. The third section has to do, and this is something that happened when George W. Bush underwent a colonoscopy. When you undergo a colonoscopy, you're unconscious for about 45 minutes. So George W. Bush wrote a letter stating, I will be temporarily incapacitated, and Richard Cheney became the president for a few hours that day. But what we're really dealing with today is Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments of such or such other body as Congress may provide, and this is talking about the cabinet, if the vice president and a majority of the cabinet send a writing to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, a written declaration that the president is unable to fulfill his duties, the president can be removed and the vice president takes over. One caveat. The president can return a letter to the Senate and to the Speaker of the House saying he's not incapacitated. And that's interesting. We've never had that happen. But if that happens, then Congress has to vote as to whether or not he's incapacitated and if he should be removed from office. So if President Trump were to become unable to discharge the duties of his office, if he were to get extremely sick and be placed on a ventilator, it is likely that he would write something stating he's unable to perform the duties of his office and Vice President Pence would become president. So I leave you with one question. Would President Trump ever write such a letter even if he knew he was going on a ventilator? You know, that's a difficult one to gauge. take it from there, Bob. <laughs> okay. First of all, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that Congress, in effect, ultimately can vote on whether the president is capable of fulfilling his duties, assuming there is a disagreement between the president and the vice president and the cabinet. Correct. And it requires that two-thirds of both houses of Congress... Uh, I misspoke. Did I say three-fourths? It's two-thirds. Two-thirds. Both houses of Congress are required to vote affirmatively on it in order to facilitate his at least temporary removal. But I guess the real question in this is, this is a disease process where people seem to kind of tumble off a cliff quite precipitously and so it seems like it's one where it would be unlikely that any president, however well-intended, would be able to anticipate that moment and write such a declaration. And it seems to me that it could cause absolute chaos in our governance it absolutely if could. this were to take place. Now, if you had presidents of the type of 50 years ago, they would write a letter in advance. And if anything happened as they were going under a ventilator, they could hand that letter to the vice president or to someone to give to the vice president. However, it is hard for me to fathom 
how members of his cabinet, who he has picked for loyalty, would be willing to say he should be removed from office, even temporarily. But the reality is, if he is on a ventilator, if he does not voluntarily write a letter, I think at that point the vice president and the cabinet would in fact write a letter and try and replace him with Vice President Pence. One of the worries that I have, one of the worries that many of the people that run our country have, is that there are bad actors in the world. There's North Korea building a nuclear weapons program and trying to get ballistic missiles that can reach the shores of the United States. That threatens our safety. Iran. President Trump recently killed Soleimani, one of their governmental leaders who's been involved with terrorism. Iran does not have the United States' best interests at heart. They may take provocative actions. China is establishing islands as military bases in the Southeast Asian seas. All of these countries could take advantage of an ill president and a chaotic governmental situation to advance what they want to do that may be harmful to United States' interests. So who's running our government right now? Well, surely good governance has yielded, as we learned in the vice presidential debate, discussions between Mike Prince and President Trump. He was asked that question last night, whether they've discussed what would happen in the event of Trump's incapacity or death. And what was his answer exactly? Vice President Pence did not answer that question. He has skillfully evaded most of the questions last night, although I will admit that Kamala Harris also avoided answering several questions. That question in particular, that they did ask her, okay, <laughs> they didn't say he didn't answer, but it was obvious to anybody who was watching that he didn't address it at all. And then they turned it over to her, have you and, you know, and, and Vice President Biden answered that, and she ducked the question as well. She also ducked the question. She talked about how she and Joe Biden see eye to eye on all of the issues and have the same values. But it was telling that Vice President Pence didn't address it, because he is the person that within days could become president of the United States. This is not talk I like making. It is a realistic talk. President Trump is under a steroid regimen that makes people feel great. If you read about the side effects of those steroids, one of the things it does is it almost makes you feel superhuman. Unfortunately, there is a crash after taking this drug. It is normally a 10-day process. It's a 10-day program. At the end of the 10 days, many people that have taken these drugs say that they crash and they feel awful. It makes people irritable. I've also, it's also been reported that it affects your ability to sleep. So if you're not sleeping well and you're suffering from what could be a deadly disease, you might not be making the most wise, prudent, and thoughtful decision. An example of that might be when Mr. Trump announced that he was canceling all negotiations with the Democrats to come up with a coronavirus stimulus bill. Now, the country is reeling under an economic decline unlike anything we've ever seen. Many businesses have been closed, will be permanently closed. The Disney Corporation let go 28,000 employees. Regal theaters have just closed, over 500 theaters across the country. There are people that work there selling popcorn, selling tickets, cleaning the theaters. All of these people are becoming unemployed. There is a terrible circumstance existing in the airline industry. Tens of thousands of people are being let off in the airline industry. What should the government do about it? Do we just let all of those people go without their income for three months, six months, nine months until there's a vaccine, until the country is back on track and people feel safe flying again? Well, during that time period, people are going to become homeless. People are going to go hungry. Other countries like Canada are giving their citizens $2,000 a month to live on. Instead, our country is giving this money to corporations and that money has been used up. 
if we do not have another round of stimulus, which the federal chairman said is essential to keep our economy afloat, there are going to be significant economic ramifications, not to mention their personal hardship. I'm very lucky. I, I can't tell you how lucky I am, and Bob as well. We are able to work either at home or we have a small office. There aren't a lot of employees here. We are able to socially distance and keep our work. Although we're not right now. Good point. However, most people that work in blue-collar industries, food service people, truck drivers, landscapers, they cannot take off work. And what happens if they get sick? Many of them don't have sick leave. So if they get sick, they, many of them will continue working. Our country is not set up to give people sick leave. If you're sick, you need to stay home. We don't need you infecting other people. And that's how this infection continues to spread. A small part of it is people that continue working that are sick. And now they're sick, we can't take time off. We need stimulus so that people can survive. And unfortunately, President Trump made a rash decision that is really hard to figure out because he's in an election. He's got less than four weeks of the election. He needs to give a stimulus, which will help the economy by not doing the stimulus. The moment he announced that statement that he wouldn't negotiate, the stock market dropped 500 points within minutes. So that may be an example that the medication is affecting him because if he had thought it through, it was a terrible judgment call to say, I'm just gonna stop all the negotiations. But the 25th Amendment doesn't contemplate, you know, sort of like sick leave for the president. You're not making rational decisions. You're taking yeah, narcotics correct. or you're taking steroids. And I mean, it's a far more... Well, I would say this. A presidential leader who was concerned about the safety of the public might consider transferring power now while they're under these heavy drugs and possibly vulnerable to falling off the cliff, as you put it, Bob. Herman Cain is a good example. Herman Cain, the week he died, was texting that he felt great. Four days before he died, he sent a text saying, I'm feeling great, I think I'm recovering, I'm doing well. He was dead four days later. He died four to five weeks after becoming infected. Herman Cain, of course, was a Republican presidential candidate previously contemplating running against Obama and various other people, had attended Trump's indoor rally in Tulsa, and you know, was talking about how great he was, and the next thing you know, he was deceased. That's right. You may remember uh, Herman Cain was the CEO of, was it Domino's Pizza or it was one of the pizza chains? Yeah. And uh, Little Caesars, I think. Little Caesars and ran for president on a 999 was his slogan, 9% tax, 9%, 9%. It is sad that he passed away, but he did attend this rally. He did not wear a mask. He sat with thousands of other people without masks. He thought he was recovering. So as much as I want the president to recover, all of us do. We want a complete, full recovery. We don't know that he's out of the woods yet. And it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what his doctors think. And his doctors, although they're not giving us very much information, have said he's not out of the woods until next week. So for them to say that tells you how serious this is. So what do you suggest as a mechanism for deploying the 25th Amendment? I know that more paranoid people would say if you had a standing document executed by President Trump making Vice President Pence in charge, that uh, you could have a takeover kind of thing by that. It's actually contemplated that you do that. That's exactly what George W. Bush did as he prepared for his colonoscopy. He had this letter as he was going to the uh, procedure. He just had it delivered to Mr. Cheney, and Mr. Cheney became vice president just for that afternoon. Right, but that's what the difference is. You're talking about an hour instead of potentially an indefinite period of time. And I guess that's the real question is, should there be something akin to a power of attorney or something like that, that's standard issue for presidents to have 
already signed, uh, it just seems like a somewhat unwieldy process, especially with somebody like President Trump, who has already suggested that if he loses the election, he may not step away from the White House. The rules that we live by in our society, the laws, the Constitution, the amendments, they're only as strong as the people that enforce them. The 25th Amendment works in this situation if the parties act in good faith. I'm not sure that's going to happen here. We already have a president that has been saying for months that mail-in ballots, which are used exclusively by four or five states and have been for decades. And which he and his wife used. And which the U.S. military has been using since the Civil War. All of the sudden, mail-in ballots are fraudulent. Now, there's a very easy explanation for this, and that is that there's a pandemic. There are many people like me who have underlying conditions. I'm over 65. I am concerned about exposing myself to crowded places. Polling places are crowded places. I would like to avail myself of a mail-in ballot. However, the president has been telling his supporters and the rest of the country for the last four or five months that if I mail in a ballot, I'm likely to be committing fraud or that fraud will occur because of mail-in ballots. Now, most Democrats are planning to use mail-in ballots because they want to stay safe from the pandemic. They don't want to go out to polling places. However, most Republicans will be voting in person. So what this means is that on the night of the election, the majority of the votes will be cast by Republicans. The mail-in votes are going to take several days because they work through the mails. And you may I'm vote. not sure, incidentally, that I can agree with that analysis, but break it down. Well, if we have a landslide, it may not turn out that way. That's the spirit. But if the election is close, the night of the election will be mostly the Republican votes, because the, I think the statistics show that more than half the Democrats are going to vote by mail-in ballots, and only about 20% of the Republicans are. So if months in advance you start telling the public that this is a fraud, there are a lot of people that support him that believe that. If that is the kind of president you are, attacking something that there is no evidence to support. Do you remember when President Trump first came into office, he created the commission that would investigate all of the fraud in our campaigns. What happened to that commission? Does anyone remember? Within 12 months, it was disbanded because they couldn't produce any evidence of voter fraud. This is our government. This is the people that President Trump picked. Now, over the last six months, there, has been law there have been lawsuits filed by the Trump administration alleging voter fraud. And in one case, I can't remember if it was Pennsylvania, the judge demanded that the Trump administration provide any evidence it had of voter fraud since they were making these allegations in the lawsuit. It gave, the court gave them a deadline. And when the deadline came and went without any evidence of voter fraud, the case was dismissed. But that's what's in people's minds. They listen to the president. So if we have a president that's alleging voter fraud on a massive scale with zero evidence, Will he voluntarily give up his office? Will he voluntarily give up his power? I believe the answer to that is no. So the only way the 25th Amendment is going to occur is if he's put on a ventilator, and at that point, the cabinet and the vice president take action. It's kind of fascinating if you read this amendment, because there is a very real possibility for, there is this situation under Section 4 uh, Bob, show the audience what you're reading. This was a gift from Judge Michelle Houghton of the Court of Appeals of Maryland when she appeared on Everyday Law, I think last year, to both Alan and myself. And it's the Maryland and U.S. constitutions. A lot of people just think in terms of the United States Constitution as being this important document. People don't know that there are individual state constitutions. 
and that many of the individual state constitutions actually predate the United States Constitution. That Maryland's Constitution stems from an earlier time, and an awful lot of the United States Constitution was derived from Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, the different states, and the constitutions that they put together. There's a lot of commonality between the Constitution of the United States and Maryland's Constitution. There are things like the Declaration of Rights and Due Process of Law, right to a jury trial, all those things are common, somewhat different language, but that's the document we're reading from. And what I was focusing on is that there's the very real possibility you could have a period of time based upon the 25th Amendment where there would not be a functioning chief executive. And that's because, as it says, essentially the way the procedure works is if the president is incapable of operating and is incapable of indicating his wish that the vice president take over, then the houses of Congress receive a request that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and they decide if the vice president should take over. The problem is that Congress isn't constantly in session, and this amendment does provide them up to 21 days before they come back into session. So you could literally have a time where the president is out of commission or the vice president of the cabinet thinks he is, the Congress isn't in session, and nobody has chief executive power. So it's a little bit of a disturbing thing at a time when the president of the United States has not only a potentially deadly disease, but a disease we haven't been dealing with very long in which people seem to routinely improve for a period of time and then suddenly have a precipitous decline in their health. And so I one wonders out loud, and I'm putting this over to Alan, what would happen if the president was out of commission and there was not an agreement on that and Congress wasn't in session? What's going to happen during that time? One would hope that they would call Congress back to session. However, I would point out that this is one of the most secretive presidencies we've ever had. And it may be a little bit disturbing for people to realize the history of secrecy of our president's health. I was eight years old when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and I looked up to John F. Kennedy as a little kid, and it was a horrific moment in my life. I think most people that were alive when John F. Kennedy was assassinated can tell you exactly where they were when they learned about it. But John F. Kennedy was portrayed as one of our healthiest, most active, youthful presidents. Did anyone know, and I didn't know at the time, that he suffered from Addison's disease? which is a gastrointestinal problem, but more importantly, he had a back problem that kept him in pain almost all the time. Not only was President Kennedy keeping his health secret, FDR suffered from polio. He was in a wheelchair. He kept that secret. Franklin Delano Roosevelt died in the first year of his fourth term. He had congestive heart failure. During his campaign, he was suffering from congestive heart failure. His doctor knew it. He knew it. He knew he was dying. That was kept secret from the country. Woodrow Wilson was partially paralyzed. Woodrow Wilson got the Spanish flu. His wife, and then he had a stroke. His wife, Edith, acted as president for the last year of his presidency. Now, was she the vice president? The public didn't know it. So the question becomes, our president, what don't we know about his health? He did do a one-hour interview this morning on Fox News, but for the last three days, he's been out of the public's appearance. He has tweeted. He's tweeted a remarkable number of times, and the things he's tweeting are quite remarkable, but he hasn't been seen, and one wonders why he's not being seen. Does his appearance give way that he is sicker than he really is? When a person has COVID, are there times where they feel great and times where they're really sick? 
Are we only hearing from the president during the times that he's really healthy? I have a real concern about his health. And the American people are relying on our president to keep us safe. Can we rely on the information we are getting currently from the administration about his health? It's an excellent question. I have a couple other disturbing things to say before we sign off for the day. Oh, this has been a very disturbing <clears throat> discussion. One of the things is if hypothetically the vice president takes over, then in their capacity as vice president under the 25th Amendment, the president is supposed to nominate a new vice president. And the decision is then thrown to the houses of Congress where a majority vote of the House and the Senate would be necessary to confirm that person as vice president. For those who follow the succession of presidents, it goes the president's in charge, then the vice president, and then the House majority leader, in this case, Democrat Nancy Pelosi, who is anathema to President Trump and Vice President Pence. And then after that, the president pro tem of the Senate, Chuck Grassley, who's an 87-year-old man. And I guess the question becomes this. If President Trump died, God forbid, and Vice President Pence took over, who would be the vice president that would be acceptable to both houses of Congress? And the answer is probably nobody, in which case, if Vice President Pence, who has been exposed to COVID, became ill and ultimately passed away, Nancy Pelosi would become president of the United States. It seems right. like that would be a fascinating development that maybe we should cover at a future show. How about this one? President Trump has announced his plan to litigate this election. Even Vice President Pence last night did not talk about there being a resolution to this election. He is going to fight through the courts, including through the Supreme Court. If he manages to prevent the states from certifying the election by January 20th, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the President of the United States, Nancy Pelosi. On that happy note, this has been Everyday Law with your host, Bob Clark. It's been a pleasure having as a guest today, Alan Steinhorn. I hope you deign to appear again in the future, Alan. It'd be my pleasure, Bob. Thank Hopefully you, everybody. More um, happiness. That sounds like an excellent idea. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.